leading members of the Democrat Party have even launched a campaign to abolish ICE. In other words, they want to abolish America's borders. We have the worst laws anywhere in the world. Nobody has laws like the United States. I believe you should get rid of it, start over, reimagine it. We need the wall. We need our immigration laws changed. We need strong people to handle those people. We don't play games, right? We don't play games. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Leon Krause. I'm a journalist at Univision based in Los Angeles, California. That's the way it should be pronounced. I'm also the host of El Gafest, our first podcast in Spanish, a Spanish language take on American politics here in Slate. I'm also very happy to say that I've also recently become a columnist for Slate. And I'm very proud to be your host for today's show. Now, even by the historically low standards of Donald Trump's chaotic infuriating, schoolyard bully presidency, this week has been quite something. Just when the president was trying to catch some air after the inconvenient and very public venting of his former employee and reality show colleague Omarosa Manigold Newman, Tuesday gave Trump a legal and political double whammy. Paul Manafort, his former campaign manager, was found guilty of eight counts of financial crimes and now faces many many decades in jail. And even worse, Michael Cohen, Mr. Trump's personal lawyer, dear friend and trusted consigliere, pled guilty to eight federal crimes, including illegal contributions to benefit then-candidate Trump's campaign at the apparent behest of Trump himself. Donald Trump reacted the way he usually does on Twitter and Fox News, where else he tried to distance himself from the whole affair, again said there is no evidence whatsoever of collusion, suggested flipping itself should be illegal after decades of watching flippers, he said, and insisted that the only thing he's done wrong is win the 2016 election. Of course, he added his beloved witch hunt with capital letters. At least he didn't call Michael Cohen a dog. However things may end for Trump, one thing is certain by now. The president can now give Elon Musk a run for his money as America's most sleep-deprived, anxiety-ridden man, although Musk is only facing the capitulation of his entrepreneurial dreams, not the disgraceful end of a presidency. As usual, sadly, lost among all this are the consequences of Trump's policies on the lives of millions of Americans with and without documents. Trump's deportation machine simply knows no bounds. In a moment, I will ask Frank Foer, who wrote a terrifying piece in The Atlantic earlier this month on the radicalization of ICE about how the Trump administration is turning fear into big business. But first, let's do some tweets. If anyone is looking for a good lawyer, I would strongly suggest that you don't retain the services of Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen pleaded guilty to two counts of campaign finance violations that are not a crime. President Obama had a big campaign finance violation and it was easily settled. A large number of counts, 10, could not even be decided in the Paul Manafort case. Witch hunt. 
I feel very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family. Justice took a 12-year-old tax case, among other things, applied tremendous pressure on him, and unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to break. Make up stories in order to get a deal. Such respect for a brave man. No collusion, rigged witch hunt. Joining me from the Atlantic studio in Washington, D.C. is Frank Foer. Frank has been on this show before with Jacob and Virginia to discuss all things Paul Manafort, which we'll also touch on here at the end of the show. But to kick things off, we're talking about ICE and Frank's cover story in the Atlantic this month about the radicalization of the agency. Frank, uh, thank you for joining me on the show. My great pleasure. I would like to begin by asking you to briefly share with us the, the history of ICE. The, the agency has grown dramatically uh, uh, in recent years, but it's only existed for just over a decade and a half, right? So it was created in 2003 along with the department that houses it, the Department of Homeland Security. But I think we need to go back a little bit uh, further in the history of American immigration to understand the emergence of ICE, which is that... We've always policed our borders. Um, sometimes we spent a lot of money on it, sometimes not a whole lot of money, but that's the border. And there is this whole other realm of immigration enforcement, which relates to the interior of the country. ICE was created in the shadow of 9-11. And so after 9-11, where we started to uh, be panicked about uh, forces that existed in the country who we, we weren't tracking or who were other and it, this began this, uh, this trajectory uh, where immigration enforcement was ballooning, but it began to just grow at this exponential sort of rate. And by the year 2012, the government was spending more on immigration enforcement than it was spending on the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, the U.S. Marshal Service combined, um, $18 billion a year. And it's just an incredible expenditure of money. And it's and it's devoted to, a lot of this is devoted to the, ICE is devoted to the interior of the country. It's about removing immigrants, not at the border. It's about uh, deporting them in many cases when they've settled here. There are 11 million undocumented immigrants in the country right now, two thirds of whom have been here for a decade or longer. Now, uh, be before we explore the ways ICE has changed uh, since Donald Trump took office, I, I would like to go back a little bit. For the first yeah. two or three years of, of the Obama administration, as you point out, the, the government had a very active enforcement strategy that disappointed many pro-immigrant groups. I remember this very clearly as a, as a, a Univision journalist. I covered it. Why did Obama, you think, a president who had actually promised immigration reform, take such an aggressive stance on deportation, at least at first? Well, there's the, um, the surface explanation and perhaps a deeper explanation. I think the surface explanation is that Obama was striving to get comprehensive immigration reform, this grand bargain with with Republicans, where in exchange for tougher enforcement, there would be some form of amnesty for the 11 million. And so Republicans were constantly criticizing Obama, saying, we don't really believe that you're sincere about enforcing immigration laws. You have to prove it to us. And so Obama set out to prove it to them. And so he was deporting. So his he was naive. 
there was a, an element of naivete there. Um, there was this, it was an asymmetrical negotiation. It was just bad, bad negotiation where he was giving the Republicans everything that they wanted without exacting anything in return. Um, and also he was playing politics too, because so much of, of American politics since the Clinton era has dictated that both parties um, seek to flex their muscles on the immigration issue, that Democrats couldn't show weakness on the issue or they would lose certain swing states. I think there's maybe even a deeper reason, which is it's not just naivete. I think it was indifference. I just don't think that immigration was an issue that animated Obama. I don't think that he uh, I don't think he thought. Uh, that much about the issue or was curious about is that issue. That's at least the impression that I get from talking to people in his inner circle. So you think he in, in uh, uh, he didn't really care that much about the issue itself. He cared about uh, other things and, and that's how he prioritized, especially in that first term, he went for uh, healthcare reform instead of delivering immigration reform no? to the disappointment of, uh, of those uh, pro-immigrant groups that I mentioned. Yeah, of course. And and he obviously had to uh, prioritize his agenda. And this was just the issue that he chose not to prioritize. But I do think so. Then then the administration starts to pivot at a certain point when he realizes that immigration reform is a lost cause and that he's unleashed this enforcement mechanism, this enforcement apparatus, and that he then decides that he wants to constrain it. And so in 2011, John Morton, who was the director of ICE, um, puts out a series of guidelines, right? It's a memo trying to constrain ICE. And it was, it's really hard to um, master the internal internecine politics of the agency because the agency has its own worldview. Um, the guys who work mm -hmm. in the agency view themselves as as cops, uh, as, as law enforcement. And so the idea that they wouldn't arrest somebody who was flagrantly in violation of the law was anathema to them. And it was part of this longer-running inferiority complex that the agency had that it wasn't respected as law enforcement. But it really took the—the uh, the Morton, Morton was kind of an ineffectual director of ICE, and the Morton memos themselves were not especially useful. It took the second Obama term, uh, Jay Johnson coming in, the crafting of more precise memos and regulations and a better articulation of the administration's uh, enforcement priorities for the number of deportations to start to seriously shrink. Now, uh, still, uh, I think by the end of the Obama years, uh, uh, like you say, ICE actions were indeed in, in many ways limited by prosecutorial discretion and by uh, at least a clearer set of priorities. I, in many ways, if an immigrant had led an honest life in America, he or she could have at least some confidence that said life was not in any imminent danger of being uprooted. And then everything changed with Donald Trump. How so? Well, so for starters, um, he threw out all of the priorities, all the restraints that Obama imposed at the end of his administration. So, where, uh, as you say, if you were in, if you were uh, a law-abiding immigrant who'd been here for a decent period of time, you could expect to live in uh, in safety. By the time, so so Trump came in and he said, "No, if you if you're here, if you're here illegally without documentation, then we're going to." You're subject to deportation, and if ICE comes across you, uh, they have every right to detain you and, and to deport you. And that was kind of the beginning of this shift where the agency, which had felt like it had been handcuffed, 
handcuffed is the term, the trope that appears consistently in the way that the uh, agency viewed itself. It had been handcuffed by Obama, and now it said the handcuffs were off. And so this was, uh, ICE just has a huge amount of latitude. Uh, It has 11 million potential targets. It has an incredible amount of resources. It has agreements with local law enforcement uh, agencies across the country where it can essentially deputize them to do its bidding. The administration has control over the immigration courts, which are not really courts in the sense that we the, the criminal justice system works. They're um, administrators who work. Judges are administrators who work for the Department of Justice. And if the attorney general gives them a set of instructions, they're uh, they're obliged to follow them. And so the instructions mm-hmm. uh, for the that they were getting were to, to move cases more quickly to strip away some of the protections that immigrants had in immigration court and with with the desired goal of dramatically and quickly increasing deportations. You argue that uh, that uh, Donald Trump has radicalized ICE well beyond the, the harshest years of the Obama presidency, and uh, and I find this uh, this very interesting. You say that uh, he has done it to the point that this current version of the agency is, and and I quote your piece, a deviation in the long history of American immigration. Why, Frank? In part, the the it's it's not even that they it's not so much that they've increase the number of deportations uh, to historic highs. The uh, the numbers of deportations right now are well off the pace set by the Obama administration in uh, 2012 and 2013. What they've done, though, that's so different is that they've attempted to use the state, attempted to use their powers in order to inculcate a sense of fear among immigrants here. And the reason is uh, is doctrinal. That there's a there's a philosophy uh, uh, that that begins with Chris Kobach, who is currently the he was Kansas Secretary of State. Now he's the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Kansas, and he came up with an idea called attrition through enforcement, which became very popular. Right? Yeah, self deportation is what Mitt Romney and others called it. Um, and the idea is that you increase. The, the sense of price, uh, the, ins- the the sense of terror that immigrants feel, you uh, make it harder for them to operate, to maneuver, to make a living, to feel a sense of uh, stability and security with the hope that they come to the logical, rational, self-interested conclusion that that their lives would be better if they voluntarily removed themselves from the United States. I've uh, uh, I always believe that that uh, personnel is indeed policy, and when it comes to immigration, uh, Donald Trump has surrounded himself not only with hardliners but with with voices who were and and you uh, explained this beautifully in your piece who were considered extreme even within immigration hawks in the Republican Party. Stephen Miller, USCIS Director L. Francis Cisna, who, by the way, is a son of uh, of an immigrant, uh, uh, Chris Kobach, who you just mentioned, and of course Jeff Sessions, who was for a long, long time the most anti-immigrant uh, senator in uh, uh, in Congress. Uh, who who are these people? I mean, what motivates all of them? Right. So they were um, most of these people worked together on Capitol Hill and. They worked in the offices of a handful of very extreme politicians, Jeff Sessions, 
Chuck Grassley, the senator, Republican senator from Iowa, Bob Goodlatte, from, who's the congressman from Virginia. And, you know, the question of what motivates them, you know, it's you listen to Jeff Sessions, who is the godfather of this group. It's pretty clear that he worries about the rise of multicultural America, demographic changes in the country, the sense that what he would deem to be real Americans are strangers in their own homes. And you see that that's kind of the case throughout. Um, Francis Cisna runs, who is a Department of Homeland Security bureaucrat who went to work for Senator Chuck Grassley and now runs a division of Homeland Security called uh, US uh, CIS, the uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services. And his office in its official motto talked about uh, the United States being a nation of immigrants. And one of his Mm -hmm. acts as head of this office was to expunge that phrase, nation of immigrants, from the, the, the organization's mission statement. And he said that the reason that he wanted to do that was to promote the interest, to make it clear that his agency was promoting the interest of the American people, as if there was tension between the idea that we were a nation of immigrants and... Uh, that there's this group called the American people. And so I'm very hesitant to try to impugn somebody's motives, but I, you know, you read the statements as they exist. And I think you, you, you do see this, this fear of the other as being an essential tenant of their thinking. So, so it's, it's nativism, it's cultural anxieties, it's social anxieties, but, and this is another part of your piece, Frank, it's also big business, right? The American yeah. immigration enforcement machine is big business. Well, I mean, this is, it's the whole Department of Homeland Security is big business. There are more contractors who work for the Department of Homeland Security than there are employers. And with ICE, you see this in particular, uh, one of the things that has emerged since 2003 is that ICE has built up this network of, of detention facilities. Congress Congress ordered ICE to rapidly expand its detention. There was a piece of legislation in 2004 that ordered them to increase detention capacity by, by at least 8,000 beds a year. And Senator Robert Byrd... Uh, snuck into uh, a piece of appropriations legislation, a, a quota that said that that ICE essentially had to fill 34,000 beds each night. And so uh, you had, uh, it's in this kind of era of outsourcing, this mania for outsourcing, ICE began to rely on uh, private companies to build and operate detention facilities. And... Um, you know, we see this in every part of government, the way in which it becomes a racket and that uh, the private companies who depend on the uh, the, the largesse of the state uh, spend huge sums on lobbying, on hiring ex-officials, on working the system um, to try to get juicier and juicier contracts. And I just would argue that this is there's certain things that should not be outsourced and should not be privatized because the market <laughs> um, the market operates on the basis of profit. And by the way, our immigration system is a civil system. Immigration crimes are, are are usually civil crimes, not criminal crimes. And so, explicitly, it said that detention is not meant to be punitive. 
It's mm-hmm. meant to be. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be civil. And so you have the system where these companies operate these facilities, which become Dickensian and and hellish because they're trying to save money every which way. And so if it comes to spending on healthcare or psychological care, or even just basic food safety, they tend to to skimp. And so everybody who every NGO that's filed reports on these facilities uh, comes back with pretty uh, ugly tales. In the story you you wrote for the Atlantic and uh, and you did it just a few minutes ago uh, as well, you keep coming back to that word, which is fear. I, I have seen this this uh, fear unfold within the Hispanic community in Los Angeles uh, in the last few months uh, or years now. In in your experience, uh, how have immigrants changed their routines? Uh, I'd be curious to to know what you've you've seen. Yeah, in in Los Angeles, I mean, we have clear data that people people uh, ha- have stopped going to church, to school, to soccer games on on, on weekends. People stopped uh, buying cars uh, and uh, uh, looking for homes. I mean, they they've really uh, pressed the pause button on on their lives out of uh, out of sheer fear. Uh, that's that's just a fact of life now. Yeah, yeah. Well, so uh, in Los Angeles. There's evidence um, that that immigrants are reluctant to go to the police to report crimes, and so exactly one domestic, way which, domestic abuse, no? domestic violence. Exactly, exactly. So rather than rather, if you're getting beaten by your husband, you don't want your husband to be deported. You don't want yourself to be deported inadvertently by reporting that crime. So it's just you leave it, you leave it unreported. Um, that's a it's a pretty terrible. Pretty terrible thing. And the other thing that you were just describing, which I've seen as well, is just all the long-term decisions that you would make to kind of commit to that grow out of a sense of stability, whether it's uh, investments in education, the decision to start a business, the decision to buy a car, the decision to save money. All these things are short-circuited because you can't count on being present here uh, for the foreseeable future. And uh, uh, you you uh, tackled your story from a, from a very smart angle, in my opinion, which is you basically, Frank, stayed away from the Hispanic narrative, which is the dominant narrative nowadays, the one that I follow every single day in the Univision, and you uh, chose to 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 go into the story through the angle of Mauritanian refugees. Uh, tell us about that. So. Um They're West Africans. Mauritania is a country that is predominantly Arab, but has um, black subpopulations who were more or less ethnically cleansed uh, in the 1990s and then had to suffer extreme case of second-class citizenship ever since. And a a group of them came, settled in Columbus, Ohio, and they, they were here for a very, very long period of time. Most of them came in about the year 2000, and uh, they had what should have been a slam-dunk asylum case uh, to make, but immigrants are among the most vulnerable people in our society, and they're preyed upon by parasites. And so they had uh, compatriots who uh, volunteered to fill out or were paid to fill out their asylum applications. And so Instead of taking their very compelling stories and rendering them the, the asylum applications, these comp- these compatriots, these translators who could speak English, just cut and paste generic stories and put them in. And immigration judges under- like, saw the pattern and started to reject their claims of asylum. But, you know, despite that fact, um, 
their deportation was just never a high priority for ICE. And so they were permitted to stay here. And so long as they checked in with ICE once a year. And, you know, over the years, if you're here 18 years, you start to feel a sense of permanence. And, you know, they didn't consider the deport- their deportation to be a live possibility any anymore so long as they kept their noses clean and just uh, stayed on the right side of the law. And then Donald Trump came into power and suddenly ICE started to demand that they check in once a month and ICE started mm-hmm. to visit their homes and pillars of the community started to get detained and deported. And I saw fear take hold in this community. I saw people begin to, to actually self-deport. Chris Kobach's dream was coming true where uh, the Mauritanians began to uh, go to Canada and apply for asylum there, or they would disappear from Ohio altogether and go to New York where it's easier to live underground. And it's just, it's terrible to see a community that had uh, built stores and mosques and uh, where parents raised kids who were U.S. citizens suddenly um, fear for its life and and slowly, maybe not so slowly, start to, to actually dissipate. Uh, a few a few minutes ago, you you mentioned uh, a chilling statistic: uh, two thirds of the eleven million. Again, we should probably repeat the number: eleven million undocumented immigrants currently in the country have lived in the United States for more than a decade. Uh, I have one more number to throw at you and and our listeners: seventy eight percent of undocumented Mexicans, just Mexicans, have lived here for more than ten years. So we're talking a, a, about almost five million people. Uh, so so that brings me to what I think is a crucial question. Frank, uh, it's also let's just, wait, wait, let's just let's yeah. just let's just pause to put those numbers in some context. In perspective, uh, yeah. eleven million is bigger than the size of of Sweden. Five million would be one of one of the major American metropolises. Five million is more than it's you know it's bigger than Philadelphia. It's bigger it's bigger than most American cities. These are these are not trivial numbers. <laughs> they are not. They are not. That's why I, I I wanted to repeat the 11 million. Of course, the five million is is, is enormous as well, uh, and and I think that begs this question: What makes a life worthy of being called and recognized as fully American nowadays? I mean, worthy of American belonging. Just last week, uh, David Glosser, Stephen Miller's uncle, recounted his own family story in America: how they made it in America, how they became American. And it was, was uh, frankly, not unlike Donald Trump's uh, story, a grandson and son of immigrants. After 10 years, they were American in every way. Why are current immigrant lives not considered American lives, Frank? By by, by some people, at least. I mean, you have to, well, there is the technical matter, which is that um, our political system is so broken that um, we haven't found um, a mechanism for, for providing citizenship for these people, even though most of the American political system would endorse the idea of giving them citizenship. Uh, but, uh, the, the majorities in both houses uh, supported immigration reform, yet uh, yet a small band of extremists have constantly found ways to to detonate immigration reform. But why? I mean, so there's there's the technical matter of uh, of them actually not having citizenship but then there's this um this moral question of 
of why they're not regarded as citizens by their fellow residents, by by other people who live with them in their communities or by uh, Republican politicians. And there, you, you, you know, it's... Uh, I think we're in the territory of having to, to discuss racism, which is a very uncomfortable thing for Americans to to discuss. But I don't, uh, you know, it, it we we treat we treat people as the other because their skin is different, or their accent is different, or their customs are different, their culture is different, even though they've implanted themselves here. They are they are American. They're they're part of our communities, and that's what. Ultimately, I find so horrifying about Trump policy is that, in effect, it's excising. Its goal is to excise Americans from from our community, from our midst. You're not dealing with people who are outside of our borders. You're dealing with people who are inside of our communities. The heartlessness, um, the dehumanizing way in which this policy treats. The other who are who are, who who are us is just resonates uh, for me with the patterns that we see in so many of the ugliest episodes in human history. Uh, and and so that that begs the question: uh, Is there an antidote? I mean, what about the media? Our role? Have we failed to tell the the, the immigrant story properly? Like like you very clearly did in in your piece in the Atlantic. Uh, um, sh should we have more of that? Because after all, I go back to a travel ban and how it initially failed, and it failed because uh, the, the American media told the stories of immigrants who who, who couldn't come into the United States for for uh, their college studies or to see their grandkids or whatnot. I mean, they 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 told the human story. Maybe we haven't told the human story of of modern immigration in America properly. Well, I think don't you think in the response to. Uh The zero tolerance policy at the border, family separations, also it was it was a policy failure because the media did uh, a very good job of of calling attention to the problem. Yeah, but there's there's also a way in which um, it's you know it's it's a fault of media, it's a fault of politicians, it's it's everybody has some blame I think to to share uh, in just being inured to. The sad stories. Um, the, the, there are so many sad stories, so many compelling stories, and when we look at them individually, they break your heart, and then you move on. Mm -hmm. And I think the struggle is to really think about the problem in its uh, its entirety, and to think about the problem comprehensively. Let me let me switch gears before we let you go, Frank. I, I can't I can't do so without getting your 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 take on the dramatic conclusion of Paul Manafort's trial. Uh, are we nearing, you think, the end of at least this Manafort fiasco, or is this only the beginning? What should we be looking for in in, in September when that uh, new trial, the second trial, begins? Uh, what's your take on what's happened uh, this week? Well, the the most important. So uh, his guilt, I think, is. Um an important milestone, but it was, and it was foreseeable and inevitable. The evidence against him was extremely strong. It would have been shocking if they hadn't achieved something close to this result. I think the surprising and important development of the week is, is uh, the president himself dangling a pardon for Paul Manafort so obviously. And so we, we, we arrive at this moment where There's all sorts of gamesmanship being deployed. Paul Manafort looks ahead. He sees this next trial, which is in 
Washington, D.C. with a judge who's much less sympathetic to him, with counts that are much more serious that he's been charged with, with the government saying that it has a thousand exhibits of evidence that it wants to use in the trial, which is nearly twice as many exhibits of evidence as they used in the last trial. So it's it's a it's it's a stronger case that they're presenting with him. And for Paul Manafort to go forward with this next step um, is just it's an expensive proposition. It's an exhausting proposition. He's already He's already gone through this once, and he may have even thought that he could have prevailed in the first trial. And I just think if you're sitting in if you're sitting in jail right now, such a lonely place to be, knowing that you're you're on your way to prison, knowing that you've got all you, you, that you've got this other trial to go through, I don't see how it doesn't break you at a certain point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and so the question, so there's these two questions. One is. Can Trump, will Trump deliver him a pardon in time that kind of uh, before he reaches that moment of being broken where he decides that it's in his best interest to cooperate or he doesn't have the resources to go forward with another defense? Uh, You know, we we don't know exactly what he would be able to deliver to to Robert Mueller and whether it would be enough to, to get him a deal. I think Trump is acting as if he has something to fear in the form of Paul Manafort. I mean, I, I was, I was a little bit, I'm a little bit surprised that um, Trump is so terrified of the prospect of him flipping, which means that he probably does have some pretty good goods to deliver to Robert Mueller. Well, Trump, Trump seems to think now that flipping itself should be illegal. That's what <laughs> yeah. he said. That's <laughs> that's what the Don said. Classic Trump. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Frank, thank you so so very much. What a pleasure to uh, to hear your your voice and uh, and hear your your opinions on this uh, very painful uh, painful topic and uh, many others. Uh, I've been speaking with with Frank Four. His cover story in the Atlantic this month is how Trump radicalized eyes. He also wrote the definitive story on Paul Manafort, which you should check out as well. Frank, again, thank you for joining me on Trumpcast. Nobody I'd rather talk these issues over with than you. Thank you. And that's the show. Did you like it? I, I sure hope so. Let me know by tweeting at Real Trumpcast and tweeting at me at Leon Krause. Leon Krause sounds very complicated. It really isn't. I've always debated whether I should say Leon Krause or Leon Krause. In any case, it's at L-E-O-N-K-R-A-U-Z-E. We would love to hear your feedback. What do you want us to talk about next? What's important to you that isn't getting the coverage you think it should on uh, our uh, podcast? Let us know again at Real Trumpcast. Our show today was produced by Jason De Leon. John Di Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. And I'm Leon Krause or Leon Krause. Thanks again for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>